Welcome to the I Love to Watch You Play.com podcast with Dr. Sam Minyar, our resident sports psychologist. Our mission help you be the best sports parent or coach you can be. And we do this by talking to the top experts and newsmakers in youth sports and drilling down on the topics that are most important to the health, happiness, and success of you and your athlete. Our guest today, Jessica Leahy, a New York Times bestselling author. She writes for The Atlantic, Vermont Public Radio, The Washington Post, and The New York Times. She's a celebrated author, an educator, and parenting expert. Please welcome Jessica Leahy to the show. Um, your first book, of course, The Gift of Failure. What an amazing, amazing, Thank helpful you. book that was. And we're really excited today. I'm going to put up, because I didn't have the hard copy, so I read it on NetGalley, but I'm gonna, I am gonna. want to show the, the book here. Uh, the addiction inoculation. And that's what we're talking about today. And I reached out to you. I read some little blurb when I saw it was coming out. Um, it's definitely something I wish I had had early on. I have teenagers now and, and you say that a lot and talk about that a lot. But, um, you know, it's really sort of a blueprint for how to help parents and, and parents watching this. If your kids are young, you still you need to get this book because I feel like I've kind of just been, you know, free falling about how to handle this stuff. <laughs> and so it, it's a, it's, it's amazing. But I, why don't you Thank tell you. us the, the real personal project of yours mm -hmm. as well, starting with the first chapter, but what made you decide to write this book? So I have basically the coolest job in the world, which is I get interested in things and then I get to do go really deep into the research. I am a research geek. I love the research and uh, and essentially find answers to the questions that I want. I mean, when I write about education, um, being a teacher, that's you know what I do. When it came to gift to failure, essentially, I wanted to understand the how. Um, you know, overparenting and doing too much for our kids, how that affects their motivation and learning. So that's what that book was about. And then uh, in 2013, I got sober after um, needing to get sober <laughs> for a while. And, uh, you know, my ship, my focus, all of my energy had been on sort of protecting my own right to drink and hiding it from everybody. And then suddenly, you know, I got sober and about a year in, I started teaching um, in a drug and alcohol rehab for kids. And between my own kids and wanting to sort of figure out when people say substance abuse is preventable, what did they mean by that? Like, what does that phrase actually mean? And then looking at my students who were in my classroom because they already had an issue with substance abuse, what could have been done differently for them? And over the 20 years that I taught, I had lots of students, including a couple, one in particular, Georgia, who's in the book, named in the book, and that's her real name. She really wanted to do this under her own real name. That's yeah, I really, she's an adult now, obviously. I just really wanted to understand what it means when we say substance abuse is preventable. I wanted to know what the myths are. I wanted to know what the realities are. And I'm married to a statistician. So essentially I spent, um, you know, a couple of years just dissecting the research to figure out what's real, what's not, what we romanticize, what the real numbers are, that kind of stuff. So, it, you know, it was about 
my kids came into this world with a genetic predisposition for this from both sides of the family, by the way, my husband and I both have it on both sides, our maternal and paternal sides. So for me, this is not just, you know, an abstract concept. This is what do I do now for my teenagers? And it's funny you say you wish you had this earlier. So do I, because (laughs) now things are slightly different. You know, my, my now 22 year old, there were different standards in our house than there are now for my 17 year old. And my 17 year old is not exactly thrilled about that. But I, as I say over and over again, with gift of failure, you know, the best we can do is model for our kids what we want to see in them, which is to do our best when we find out we've done stuff wrong to, and and there's evidence that we can point to that say, oh, this is how I can do it better to learn from that and grow as people. So that's what we're doing. And, you know, yeah, my 17 year old is a little miffed with me about that, but yeah, that's, that, that that's what makes you, a good parent. The story you tell about the, exactly that giving him a sip of wine as a baby because you wanted yeah. his first wine you know and i think i think that's it was a really, really nice bottle it was a really wine. nice bottle <laughs> <laughs> right. and not a, it was, <laughs> a taste yes. on, right? a taste right. on his tongue yeah right right but that is good for people to hear that like yeah. just because you didn't start out maybe i know i've made after reading the book seen so many mistakes i've made but it's good to know like it's not done. Like you, it's a constant work and change. And if you change and can figure it out, so can we. Yeah. One of the questions I get a lot is, is it too late? I've been either with gift of failure stuff, you know, I've been too much doing too much for my kids. I'm afraid that they're, you know, I've rendered them helpless or, you know, my kids are in teenagers now and I haven't, we haven't really talked about substances. Is it too late? And it is never too late. There's really good evidence that shows even once our kids are off at college, they still look to us for good information on health and and habits. So no, it is absolutely never too late. As a second child, I empathize with your 17 year old. So uh, so, so Jess, you you talked about this being personally meaningful to you. Mm -hmm. And obviously that's Mm -hmm. why, why you wrote the book. But I think the reason Asia and I were so drawn to this was because I think this topic, we think this topic's important for everybody. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. so, you know, talk to us about, you know, why should people pay attention to this topic? Why, why is this important for parents who are listening or who will watch this or listen to this mm-hmm. later uh, to pay attention to this topic? Number one, because it is true that substance abuse is preventable and uh, we have really good evidence to show that over the last decade or so, based on the fact that we've got better at our messaging, we figured out that like the scared straight messaging and the just say no messaging doesn't work. So we've gotten better in our messaging. And over the past decade or so, um, the trends have been down, down, down. Substance use among adolescents has gone down, down, down. And that's fantastic. Um, We did see a slight uh, plateau right before COVID hit. So I think it's gonna be really interesting over the next couple of years to see what that looks like. Um, and you know what has ha- we know that adults have been drinking more during the pandemic. Um, you know, I'm coming out of this ten pounds heavier than I went in, so I know I've been eating to compensate during this. So, um, so there's that. There's and then on top of that, you know, as a longtime educator, I knew that a part of this had to do with with schools. What are we doing in schools? And only 57% of schools have any kind of substance abuse prevention program. And of that 7, 57%, only 10% are evidence-based. So mm-hmm. what are we doing with all of those resources? Well, it turns out the good news, and the reason I'm so optimistic about this, is that 
we know for a fact there are programs out there that have been proven by independent, you know, not just the programs evaluating themselves, but independently evaluated evidence-based programs that are effective. And they are essentially really good uh, social emotional learning programs with health components. They exist, they're out there. SEL, social emotional learning is all the rage right now. We know we're gonna have to really hit that hard with kids when they come back from this pandemic. So if schools are already using these SEL programs, let's pick the best ones, the ones that have the best uh, substance abuse prevention programs and put those into place. Because we know that it, even if you look at how much they cost over the long run, they're gonna save us a lot of money. So. Sure. There's that aspect. I'm a, I'm an eternal optimist, frankly. I just I always <laughs> am about education, and I've been writing about education for a long time. And then the third part of this is, I think a lot of people tend to look at these conversations as being about substance abuse generally in humans, um, and a lot of people tend to think of adolescents as just smaller, less capable adults, and that is so far from the truth. Um, we used to actually think that the human brain was done developing at 10 because it was at its adult size, but the adolescent brain is not done developing until the mid to early to mid 20s. And the things we do during our adolescence have an incredible impact on the growth and, and development of the adolescent brain. There is no period of time except from zero to two where the brain is more sensitive to the environment. And so we need to start messaging early. We need to protect that brain and the message needs to be delay, 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 because which with, with each year that goes by, not only do we protect the brain for longer, we also lower the risk that that given child will have substance use disorder over their lifetime. So I, we need to protect their brains. We need to understand that it is possible to prevent substance abuse. We need to give kids more credit for being to, able to evaluate data and understand how it's gonna impact their lives. And we need messaging that works. And um, whether that's refusal skills and inoculation messaging, which is why the word inoculation is in the title, we know that these things work and that some of them even generalize. And if you wanna protect kids against high risk behaviors like substance abuse, it actually generalizes and also protects them against high risk behaviors like sex before they're ready. And I think it's important, and you you said it quickly in there, that parents realize too, like there's substance <clears throat> abuse and, and that's a huge fear where, where it's like mm -hmm. it becomes an issue. But right. to your point and what you just said, I just want to make sure parents understand too, even uh -huh. just using substances, if you don't end up having right. an issue right. with them, right. can change a child's brain. So we're not just yep. talking about the kids that are going to you know, God forbid, end up in a rehab one day or something. Right. It's for right. all kids. It's for all kids. And, you know, even, um, <clears throat> even, a, s a small use creates, there's all kinds of stuff going on in the brain and it's a really complicated picture, which is one of the fun things for me. I mean, I get to sort of get all this data and then sort of translate it in a way that will make sense to someone. My, my editor kept coming back with these edits like, yeah, we don't need to know all that. Just give us, just give us the clear stuff. So I attempted to make it as simple as possible, as understandable as possible without talking down to anyone for all the ways that we can convey to kids that it really does affect their 
brains and how it affects their brains and in what ways. And yes, there are short-term negative effects. There are also long-term negative effects. You know, for example, kids who use marijuana um, on a regular basis have a smaller hippocampus than kids who don't use marijuana. So, and the hippocampus is such a vital part of the brain. It's memory processing. It's especially emotional memory processing and all of those really vivid memories from adolescence that we have, the ones that like are just seared in our brains, that's because they're being processed by the hippocampus. It is a vital part of our brain that we need to protect at all costs. And the longer we can keep kids from using substances, the more we can protect those, those structures. Sure. So just to follow up on a few things, I know, I know we started going down the school route and I, I want, I want the listeners to know that there's a, a dedicated chapter in your book that, that mm -hmm. talks about schools. So we're, we yeah. certainly can't unpack the entire book today. <laughs> so if that was intriguing to you, please go and re read the mm -hmm. book. Um, um, and, and uh, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the brain and, and as a psychologist, I, I love that, that, that side too. And, <laughs> I would have loved to seen your earlier drafts. Oh, I maybe, love but, that. Oh, there's but, uh, the cutting room. <laughs> the cutting room floor. The cutting room floor is littered with stuff, and you so, should see. The history chapter, my my actually my two best friends who are also writers joke that um, you know they I they were had to suffer through hearing about all of the minutia of the history of like how many casks of beer would come over on those ships in in sixteen ninety. Oh, I love it. I love so, it. So, I mean, um, you know, and, and your book does go into a little bit about the, the prefrontal cortex and, and basal ganglia and things like that. But, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the dopamine piece that you yeah. talk about in your book. And, yeah. and I found it really interesting where you talked about adolescence and, you know, I, I have a, a teenager, so I can relate to the boredom and this, the, you know, the, the, the stupidity, let's call it uh, absent-minded. How about that? Um, mm -hmm. You know, um, <laughs> that you talk about in, you know, with the dopamine and then mm -hmm. the hits from taking yeah. risks and, and then yeah. smartphones and social media and then, but nothing compared to the hits of dopamine yeah. from substances. So can you talk a little bit about that? I think, you know, a big part of what it means to be a teacher and what it means to be a parent of teenagers requires us to do to try a little bit, at least to get inside how they think, as opposed to the way we think about how they think, because there are a lot of things that make a lot more sense once we do that. And a big understanding for me sort of dawned when I realized I found out that, um, you know, while researching that adolescents have lower baseline levels of dopamine than children or adults. So that whole like <clears throat> flopping on the ground and saying, I'm so bored. That's due to lower levels of dopamine. Dopamine is not just about pleasure. Dopamine is about motivation. Dopamine is about, you know, the things that get us moving to go do stuff out there in the world. And if your baseline level of dopamine is low, you just feel bored. And the adolescent brain also craves novelty, which makes perfect sense, right? Because adolescents are going through a period of their life when they're supposed to be pulling away from us and individuating and, and striking out into the world and, and trying new things in order to become capable so that they can become adults. That's what they're supposed to be doing is pulling away from us, no matter how horrible that sounds to me. I want them to stay close and you know, need me. But so if we put those two things together, this craving for novelty, this need for, um, you know, and sometimes risk, I mean, depending on the kid, and a lot of this comes down to personality, uh, some Ooh. kids really, really need these sort of 
heightened, scary, risky experiences in order to get that shot of dopamine they need in order to just feel normal. And it, what's interesting is when you talk to kids about that, it sounds a lot like the way some kids talk about needing um, some drugs in order not to get high, but just to feel normal, because that's what happens later on in, in substance abuse. So there's this you know, we're never going to be able to take away that, and we shouldn't want to, that need for new novelty, that need for risk, that need for something to just sort of boost the feeling of being in the world and being fully alive, because that's what makes teenagers so magical and so frustrating. <laughs> and the other thing that we need to also understand about them, and this is of particular frustration, or was anyway, to me, you know, so many parents come to me and they say, my kid just doesn't seem to understand the consequences of this, what's going on. And that is not true. Your kid does understand the consequences of their actions, the negative consequences of their actions. It's just that they weigh the positive benefits more heavily. If those positive benefits are social acceptance, if those possible benefits are a big shot of dopamine so that they can feel alive, that might outweigh, might very well outweigh the remote possibility right. that their hippocampus is going to be a tiny bit smaller <laughs> when they're 25. So understanding that is also an important part because then we can sort of help help balance the weighing of those factors, especially if in our family, as we do, we have personal experience with what can happen when you um, use drugs and alcohol in a way that's um, going to put you in danger. And, uh, you know, there are lots of ways to do that sort of communication. And then you're right. I mean, Sam, the problem is, is that drugs and alcohol can fill those receptors in a very, you know, drugs and alcohol, especially like opiates. Yes, we have opiates receptors in the brain, but we're never going to pump out the same amount of opiate to fill those receptors that you could get if you were taking, you know, something from the medicine cabinet. So we could, our natural resources, our natural opiates, you know, the thing we talk about when we're talking about like runner's high, we're never going to be able to get to those levels. But an opiate, you know, you take a, a you know, you take a prescription opiate and it's going to fill those up and you're going to feel fantastic. And it's like an unfair advantage in the brain. And, and that's what we're up against when we're trying to get kids. And that's why it doesn't work when we say drugs are bad. Well, why would so many people take them if they're bad? If they're all bad, there's, that makes no sense. So first of all, my kid is going to doubt my judgment and my sanity, and it's not going to believe me when I help them understand other aspects of this, or I try to help message about this stuff. So let's start from a place of, yeah, they can make you feel absolutely great, but here's what they're doing. And it's, you know, some drugs not only fill up those receptors, but alter our ability to feel pleasure over the long term. I mean, one of the hardest drugs to sort of recover from is something like crystal methamphetamine, because it actually permanently alter well for a very long time anyway alters uh the way we feel pleasure in the brain and so it can you know you can feel like you're stuck in this monotony when you're coming off of a drug like that because there are just no highs no lows no nothing um so that's what we're up against when we're trying to help kids understand um the physiology of the brain and and why it's so important to delay before we move on to like who is at risk, most at risk, and some things that parents can look out for. Can you sort of like um, give us some perspective and the parents with some statistics surrounding like how many kids are using, like how big of an issue is this? Yeah. 
So what was fascinating to me is there's this concept called pluralistic ignorance that just I find, I couldn't believe it when I started reading about it. It turns out that we tend to overestimate other people's interest, other people's investment in and other people's use. So for example, if I were to ask my 22 year old son how much his roommates drink, he's going to tend to overestimate their interest in drinking. Or if I were to say, you know, how many people do you think would attend uh, an event at your college that has no booze at it? He will tend to say, no, people won't go because most people will want booze there. So that's an overestimation that we all tend to do. So what's fascinating about that is that the news of actually how many people are interested in drinking or invested in drinking, when they when we find out the real numbers, they're kind of shocking. In fact, I wasn't even going to put a college chapter in this book because I was so sold on the belief that everyone in college drinks, there's no way around it. Why would I even bother to put that chapter in there? It would just, it'd be like Sisyphus. It's just too much, <laughs> too hard. Turns out 44% of college kids drink. And that was so difficult for me to square with the amount of alcohol that's consumed on college campuses. But that's because a very sli small sliver of kids on college campuses drink the majority of alcohol on college campuses. Not only that, college kids and adolescents in general don't tend to drink like adults drink, they drink, they binge drink. Um, uh, kids don't, you know, mainly because of sort of availability and just the way they tend to, to do it, it tends to be binge drinking, which is, you know, a couple more than a couple of drinks at one right. sitting. It depends on boys versus girls. So that was sort of a shocker to me. And then we start thinking about, you know, on the other end of it, parents tell me, oh my gosh, I cannot believe my 20, 12 year old, I found out my 12 year old's been drinking and I just can't even wrap my head around that. He or she is so young. But <laughs> if kids are gonna start using substances, middle school is actually when they start. But they're starting in smaller numbers than we may think. So for example, um, by the end of eighth grade, only 24% of eighth graders report that they've had more than a sip of drugs or alcohol, or more than a sip of alcohol. So when your eighth grader comes and you know reports that they were offered some something to drink and that the person who offered it to them said, oh, you know, it's no big deal, everybody does it. It's really great to have the information that no, only a quarter of kids in middle school admit that they've had a drink by the end of middle school. So the numbers are lower than we might expect, mainly because we have a tendency as humans to overestimate how much other people are drinking or care about drinking. And you can understand also how that works, for example, on college campuses, the, it's a self-perpetuating cycle because we don't offer sober options or non-alcoholic options next to the alcoholic options right. at parties and functions on college campuses because we overestimate the number of kids who will say, oh, I'm not going to that because there's no booze there. So while we are making some great strides, for example, sober housing is now a thing at some colleges for people in recovery. Um, wellness dorms are very much a thing now. You can get um, access to your own gym in your dorm or they'll give kids Fitbits depending on the program. Um, you can earn all kinds of incentives that are really great. Um, those are increasingly becoming a thing. But, um, but we still do have this tendency to overestimate uh, drug and alcohol use among adolescents. So, and the more we, the longer we can delay it, 
the closer we can get to what is sort of the average for people who tend to have issues with substances, which is around 10%. Um, you know, if kids start drinking during middle school, they have above a 50% average of having had having a substance use disorder during their lifetime. And then once they get to 10th grade, it's lower than that. And then once it's like 17%. And then once they get to senior year of high school, once they get to 18, it's back down to 10%. So delay, delay, delay should be the message. And no, not as many kids are using as you think they are. And I lay these numbers numbers out really clearly in the book. Great. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. And I think some yeah. of it has to do with, I think some of it has to do with, you know, how people are defining drinking or using in the research, right? So mm -hmm. you can certainly right. find statistics that say 70% of college students or 80% of college students are drinking, but that's mm -hmm. defining, have you had a drink in the last year? What right. you're talking more about is the, the the more dangerous patterns of binge drinking in college. Right. When we're talking about high school, though, adolescence, which is really what we want to zero in on today, uh, any any use is concerning. Mm -hmm. um, right. Yeah, the, the biggest, best survey we have, the one that I look forward to reading every, such a geek. <laughs> the one I look for, the survey I look forward <laughs> to reading every year is, it comes out in August and it's it's called Monitoring the Future. It's out of University of Michigan. And it, um, it looks at eighth graders, 10th graders and 12th graders, and it surveys them about their attitudes and their use. And it measures not only past year, but past month or ever. And it, what's nice about that is you can look at, you know, okay, over the past 30 days, how many kids have smoked um, marijuana or over right. the past year or have you ever had and they define um, they define drinking as any drink as more than a sip of alcohol um, so that's sort of a helpful measure but the problem is is that even the numbers that we tend to use to define binge drinking those numbers are problematic mainly because women um, women and men are built differently. Physiologically, right. we're built differently. You know, men can drink more than women because they have higher proportion of water in their bodies because of a higher proportion of muscle. Women tend to have more fat, so they process alcohol differently. We also, women also have a lower level of a particular enzyme that helps us break down alcohol. And then when we look at um, adolescence, you know, we use the same numbers to gauge binge drinking in adolescence as we do in adults, but there are lots of reasons actually, and the American Academy of Pediatrics is working to get this changed because the numbers should be much lower when we're looking at adolescents than when we're looking at adults. Um, and if you're wondering why I'm moving so much, I'd love for anyone watching to know <laughs> that if you have dogs in the room, they sell this slingshot with these little tiny felt balls. So when your dog <laughs> is doing things they shouldn't do, you can shoot them with painless little felt balls that I use to control Does the dogs that work? in the room. It does. I had, work. Have, I had to have my daughter take my three dogs for a walk because I couldn't. I would have too many. I would be going constantly. Right. I know. The problem is, is that um, with everyone working at home, uh, it, what we have found is that they are quietest with me, um, and we have three of them. So generally speaking, our best bet is to have them in the room with me. But that means that I have to have a slingshot that shoots little wood. Terrible. <laughs> I, I don't want to take a dark turn before we move on. I do. We need to get going. There's so much yeah, to cover. Course. But sure. there was one stat in particular that me and someone on Instagram were kind of going back and forth on. And sure. I just would yeah. love the clarification. It was the one yeah, in five course. young adults will die. But it was a daily. Is that right? Uh, I, I think I must have written it out wrong or something. But we were kind of going yeah. back and forth it, about figuring that one out. Because that is that sounds it, horrible, too. You had an early version of the galley. That oh, sentence is no longer in there. It was a okay. miss. It was uh, that was uh, 
someone, I, I got that from a source where it was a misinterpretation of some data. So that sentence is not in the book because it is, it, it okay. is wrong. And so how, actually, how, yeah. What was so great about that is that sentence was caught because of someone like you who read the early galley and said, oh my gosh, this just doesn't make any sense to me. And I looked at it and I said, oh my gosh, this makes no sense whatsoever. So yes, thank you so Got much for, for mentioning that. I was gonna say what I will say is uh, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry uh, has a statistic that if you look at the 15 to 24 year age range, that mm -hmm. half of deaths from accidents, homicides, or suicides are yeah. are, are drug or alcohol related. Um, now that's pretty staggering. Yeah. Well, also, what's what's crazy to me on the same because there's so many things that are that affect teen driving, obviously distracted driving, substance abuse right. while driving. But get this: when when in one study, when a school district changed its school start time to be after eight thirty, they reduced the number of accidents, yes. car accidents That's caused crazy. by children because. Um, adolescents not only have this sleep phase delay where they get tired later and it's harder for them to wake up in the morning, but they also, and this applies with alcohol too, I hadn't put these two things together. Teenagers don't feel the ramifications, the consequences of not getting enough sleep the way adults do. They just don't feel as overwhelmingly tired as we as adults might. The other thing is they don't feel as impaired. They don't perceive their mm -hmm. own drunkenness right. as being as impaired as they are. So they're more likely to drive while drunk because they don't feel as drunk as their blood alcohol content in the same blood alcohol content an adult might, um, mm -hmm. which was new, uh, which was news to me as well. So that's another reason that, you know, not only is binge drinking the way they tend to drink more dangerous, the way they perceive their own drunkenness renders them more dangerous um, as drivers as well. So for everyone who's watching right now, I know we've had some people coming and going in. Please, if you have questions for Dr. Leahy, please put them into the comments. And we're getting ready I'm to get a, into- I'm not a doctor, by the doctor. way. I'm not a doctor. Ah, <laughs> you are in my no, mind. mind. You are in my mind. <laughs> no, I went, You're I went a jurist doctor. doctor. I'm a jurist doctor. You know, if, I think if there we went around calling, started that calling counts. lawyers doctors. Yeah, no, I don't think so. Not quite. Uh, a doctor, you have a doctor of parenting. Um, so definitely you guys, please put some out there. We're getting ready to talk specifically about athletes, but before we do, let's, yeah. let's get to like, so I think the Chris Heron story that you shared, and I think you were actually there to, to hear that, mm -hmm. but what he says about we focus on the worst day of the kids and their abuse problems and forget the first day. And so it's yes. that first day that we're kind of here with you talking about trying to figure out. And I know I did with two sides of our families with alcoholics and now we have a divorce. We have a lot of these things, but can you talk a little bit about some of these markers and early predictors? And, and obviously they're not cross the board, always a hundred percent, but, but share right. that a little bit. Yeah, Chris, Chris Heron, you know, speak, does a lot of speaking in schools and I'd heard just how compelling he can be. And so I went to go see him speak at a school and he is absolutely riveting. He was a Boston Celtic. He was one of the Boston Celtics. He grew up in Fall River, Massachusetts, and he um, had he became addicted to opiates. And actually, there's this one stunning moment that he talks about where he's in his like his warm up gear getting ready to play and he's 
detox. He's he's withdrawing from opiates and his his dealer couldn't get there in time. And so Chris was actually in his warm up gear outside Boston Garden on the street waiting to intercept his dealer on the street so that he could get the drugs from his dealer in his Celtics warmups. Oh and you know, I'm, I'm from Massachusetts. So the right. Celtics are my team, you know, and that imagine that. And he ended up actually in an accident that nearly killed him. He drove in a, in a very new England style, actually drove into the side of a Dunkin' Donuts, which I think is just, you know, too, too good. <laughs> but Chris, Chris is so fantastic because what he does is he, when he talks to kids, he's like, look, what I'm concerned about is, why you feel you are not enough in that moment when you're down in the basement with your buddies, what it is about you that makes you feel like you can't just be who you are. And that in a nutshell mm -hmm. is my entire adult career. Like how can we make kids feel like they are enough to present themselves to the world? How do we help them develop their inner voice so that they feel strong and they feel like they know who they are? And then how do we help them project that outer voice to the world? And over and over again, what I hear both in recovery, I happened to get sober in 12-step in, uh, in recovery. That's not for everyone, but it was definitely the way to go for me. Um, over and over again in recovery, what I hear is, I just never felt like, I felt like everyone else had the instruction manual to living in the world and I just didn't have it, or I didn't feel like I was enough, or I didn't feel like I could talk to people, or I felt like an imposter. And it wasn't until I had that first drink that I felt, oh, this is the answer. And so for me and for Chris, what's really important is how we get kids to feel like they are enough in that first moment. And that to do that, we really have to go backwards and we have to go backwards and consider things like adverse childhood experiences. And for this, I think not only do we owe a huge debt of gratitude to the to Kaiser Permanente and the CDC for doing the first, the ACEs, the adverse childhood experiences study, where they figured out that there were commonalities among people who suffered, you know, early mortality from heart attack and stroke and had substance abuse issues and had mental health issues. And it all goes back to some of these, a list of adverse childhood experiences that include violence in the home, substance abuse in the home, you know, one of their parents in prison, um, uh, you know, sexual assault, all these sorts of things that can happen in the home. And then uh, there's another book called The Deepest Well by Nadine Burke Harris. And we owe her a huge debt of gratitude because she expanded that list based on her pediatrics practice in California to include a lot of things that, you know, I think once I start saying these things, defenses tend to go up like, oh my gosh, well, how can you implicate divorce and separation, adoption? as a risk factor for substance abuse, but I don't want anyone to feel shame or guilt for having these things in their family. That's not the intention. The intention is to say, look, knowledge of these risk factors is power. If we know that when children are aggressive towards other children, that is a risk factor for substance abuse. When we know a child suffers from academic failure, that is a risk factor for substance abuse. When our child is socially ostracized, that is a risk factor for substance abuse. So instead of feeling shame and guilt about that, you know, we need to channel some Brene Brown. We need to say, oh no, okay, I have some understanding now now that I have that understanding, that is power for me. And I can use what I know about protective factors to outweigh that old timey scale, risk on one side, prevention on the other. And, you know, my kids came into this world with 
we think genetics is about 50 to 60 percent of the of the picture that comes from Mark Shook at, at uh, USC. Mm -hmm. So if that's 50 to 60 percent of the picture, oh my gosh, my kids are coming in and right. I came in world with those odds. So how do we deal with that? How do we deal with also on top of genetics, this thing called epigenetics, which is about how our environment causes our genes to express in various ways for better or for worse. And how do we deal with the risk factors like, you know, the ACEs, the adverse childhood experiences or trauma, big T and little t trauma and toxic stress and academic failure, social ostracism, undiagnosed learning issues. I mean, you know, when a kid has learning issues, not only does that lead to, uh, you know, some academic failure, but maybe also social ostracism. So the earlier we get to them, the earlier we can get to them before they start to tangle up. Like, you know, if mm -hmm. we want to know that it was the academic failure that led to these six other risk factors, it's great if we can get there early and intervene with the academic failure before it turns into the social ostracism or the aggression or the whatever the other thing is. So those are the big ones. Genetics, trauma, um, academic failure, learning issues that, uh, you know, go undiagnosed, um, you know, obviously there are, it depends by gender, you know, for girls, uh, sexual abuse is like huge. Sexual abuse as a child for girls is like a, a highway to substance abuse. And so for those kids, uh, you know, and there's a lot of shame around addressing that when it happens in the family, but we just have to get over that somehow, because if we don't deal with that stuff, if we don't deal with our own stuff, if we, as, you know, as let's say we're, moms engaged in that, you know, mommy juice, sippy cup top on the top mm -hmm. of the wine glass, mommy drinking culture. And we're, you know, telling our kids that maybe they shouldn't drink until they're 21. But at the same time, we show them that we drink in order to cope with our feelings and our stress around being parents. Right. Um, we're sending them a message of self-medication. And we're also sending them the message that PS kids, you guys are so stressful. I have to drink. I was in a bookstore a couple of years ago and I saw these glasses, um, wine glasses that said, I teach, therefore I drink. And I've never been so insulted by something in my entire life because you think about like mm -hmm. the career I chose that is yes, very stressful. Then someone's going to sell a cup that says like, I teach, therefore I drink. It's just on so many levels. It's so bad. Yeah. And people are buying it. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, clearly. So let, let's, um, you know, so th thank you for sharing some of the risk factors. And, and we don't want to be all doom and gloom here. And no, your book is actually about the protective factors and inoculating. And so so certainly yeah. want to get to that. Uh, but 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 I want to talk a little bit about athletes since the, mm -hmm. the bulk of yeah. our the bulk of our listeners and viewers are here because their children play sports. So. Um, so interesting, you know, and, and your, your book does touch, you know, in, in parts on, on sports, but, but I also pulled out some research as well that I wanted to mm -hmm. kind of chat Great. with you. So, so one of them, which I found very fascinating was you talked about the study where they look at the, the even numbered grades, um, you know, in, in high school. Well, so there was one study that looked at 12th graders and found that if you played a sport your senior year. Mm -hmm. that you were um, you were more likely to binge drink over the next one to four years than if you did not play a sport your senior year. And and one of the protective factors you talk about in your book is to get out and exercise. And yeah. and I always yeah, preach I exercise say, for mental health. Yeah. So so help us understand, you know, how do you make sense of this? 
Number one, it depends on the sport. Like it or not, the higher contact sports have higher levels of substance abuse. The big four are wrestling, hockey, lacrosse, and soccer. Those are the big, and football, sorry. Those are the big four, although soccer has its issues as well. Um, so there's that. Some sports have lower levels. So for example, like I was, I was loving, in the chapter, there's an entire chapter on peers that I think is really important to this conversation as well. Um, there's a, a kid, um, now an adult, also his real name is, is in the book. His name is Brian. And Brian felt it was really, really important that his real name be used in this book because he wants to be an example in fact, he wants to open uh, his own um, rehab for kids, actually. He's just, he's studying psychology now to do that. He's an amazing human being. Um, Georgia also featured in the book. That's her real name as well, because she felt the same. They both felt like all this stuff they went through um, becomes worth it if you're able to help other people. So Brian actually was a kid that my son knew uh, because of cross country. They were on the same cross country team and cross country actually seems to have a protective factor against substance abuse. And, uh, you know, they're possible all kinds of reasons why. Um, but having friends on that track team, on the cross country team for Brian was actually stabilizing force. Mainly, I think it was because of, you know, there was peer pressure against using substances from some of those kids. So I think number one, it depends on the sports. Number two, it depends on it also depends on the sports because of the way drug uh, alcohol in particular is marketed. Um, you know, one of the biggest offenders, if you ask, for example, if you go to responsibility.org, um, if you ask them who the biggest offenders are in terms of marketing and um, alcohol and sports and targeting kids, it's FIFA. FIFA is one of the worst offenders around mm -hmm. advertising alcohol um, behind players. And, you know, we may not ha have the you know, the logo on the player, but it's right behind them. And sports and, and alcohol, you know, with tailgating and all that stuff get inextricably linked together. And, you know, football, soccer or football internationally, um, there are certain sports that market more aggressively with alcohol companies than others. And so when we have a situation where it's like, okay, it's the big day, it's the Super Bowl, do we have enough beer? You know, that tends, those two things tend to go together. Um, and I think it's really important that it's, it's, so it's great to be a part of sports, but if your kid is involved in a heavy drinking sport, it's even mm -hmm. more important to have these conversations all the time. The other thing that I love about this is that we also know that when it comes to the two heaviest drinking situations in college, um, when you look at colleges, the places where kids drink the most tend to be around sports um, and specifically the highest contact sports and in frats. And it turns out that they look to their leaders, so the frat president or the team captains, in order to gauge their own drinking. Their, the drinking of the uh, participants tends to rise to the level of the leaders. And it also has to do with this thing called that we talked about with the pluralistic ignorance, where we also tend to overestimate how much other people would want alcohol at a given function. So would you throw a Super Bowl party without beer? Not many people would unless they don't drink at all, because the under, your understanding is everyone's going to want beer. It's a Super right. Bowl party, that kind of thing. So I think um, and then there's the added problem that most colleges, a lot of colleges, I won't say most, a lot of colleges tend to turn a blind eye when it comes to underage drinking um, and for better, or for worse. And so I think there's a a bunch of things we can't make a lot of generalizations i think about sports because we know sports are different and then on the top of that i think we also have to look at the fact that this past year 
not being able to play sports has been incredibly stressful for some kids. Sure. And for some kids, being able to play has been a lifeline. Um, you know, my niece is a wrestler, actually. I get to do a little um, auntie. Wow, that's right kind of neat, yeah. My niece, my niece is um, a freshman in high school, and she is the state wrestling champion in the state of Arkansas. Whoa. She just, she just won, and wrestling has been her lifeline. Even when she could only work out socially distanced and lift weights with her teammates, it was her lifeline during this. So you know, a lot of people were quick to come down on on sports and practices, but. On the other hand, and I'm married to an infectious diseases physician, by the way, so like, and a medical ethicist. And so these questions have been very much in our house this past year about whether or not kids should play sports during the COVID pandemic. And it's really hard because for a lot of kids, their mental health really resides in being able to exercise vigorously and be a part of a team. They're is very little that can match being a part of a team. I mean, it's an incredible thing. So when that team is a good influence from a peer perspective, it can be incredibly powerful protection against substance abuse. When that team is part of a drinking culture um, and is really uh, pushing a lot of peer pressure around drinking and especially around binge drinking, which is again, how adolescents tend to drink, it can be a really negative protective factor. Right. So it's really difficult to make any generalizations around sports, mainly because sports like people can be very, very different. And the atmosphere around given sports, you know, I, you know, I don't think we're gonna have the same drinking in fencing as we do in, you know, football. I just think they're very different and individual sure. sports are different from team sports. Unless that team has a culture of drinking, right. so you could still right. have that on a fencing team. Of course. So, so of you're course. talking about the culture of the sport, but we're also talking about the culture within the team, right? And, and, and the culture within, yeah, and the culture within the player's family as well. Sure. So there's, sure. And the culture within the community, the culture within the school. What's yep. it turns out, the amount of drinking that happens on college campus is very much related to the alcohol, the enforcement of alcohol laws in a given state. So the state you're in, I mean, yeah. you right. know, the drinking picture may look very yep. different, right? Sure. Yeah. And interestingly, you know, there, there was a study of col 42 college softball teams. And the only factor that predicted whether the team members were drinking, it didn't matter how many times the coach talked to them about it. It didn't matter how much education they had. The only factor that seemed to correlate was whether the captain was drinking or not. So, yeah. Um, yeah. so again, there's so many so factors. Optimistic. That makes it me does. so optimistic. Yeah. That is so much power wrapped up in one person. And we can, if we can get help, those people shape team morale team you know the teamwork the the drink all of it is so wrapped up in this one person and so you know uh, there's a great story that glennon doyle tells about um well two stories glennon doyle is married to abby wambach and abby wambach of course one of the most famous soccer players ever um there are two stories I love to tell. One has to do more with gift of failure stuff and that was that uh uh glennon posted an instagram post that's that was about when her daughter comes off of the soccer pitch during a game, Abby's, Abby asks two questions. Number one is, did you have a good time? Number two, how do you feel about how you played? And then Glennon goes on to say, 
if any of you out there know more about soccer than my wife, Abby Wambach, feel free to go ahead and <laughs> criticize their play and their coaching, that kind of thing. But the other thing that Abby, that Glennon talks about in her recent book, Untamed, is that Abby pushed for one of their daughters to become a soccer player. Um, and it wasn't that she actually was the most skilled soccer player. She was taken for this traveling league because the coach saw her as an incredible unifying force in the team. So I think coaches need to think about when they're selecting players, not just for skill, not just for who can score the most goals, although those things are incredibly important, but for people who have a positive unifying force right. on the team or a positive healthy force on the team and who is teachable. I mean, I think those all, all of those things come together to create an incredible team atmosphere. And as we know, well know, teams who uh, drink a lot are going to be less successful than teams that don't simply from a health perspective and an endurance perspective and a game day, you know, just feeling on top of your game sort of perspective. So I think, you know, I hope that coaches can start looking at this and realizing just how much power they have to select their team captain and just how much power the team captain has on the rest of the players in the team. And, and, you know, I think for parents, too, because I was I'm on a group chat with on Facebook that has a lot of um, parents of college athletes. And I, I went and I was looking through some of those strings and, you know, a big thing to sort of help push this to the next phase of what you what you do about it. High school, maybe not. There's not too much you right. can do about it. Right. If you're in your local right. public high school team. But for college on your recruiting visit. There is right. definitely a way to see what their culture and team is going to be yeah. all about. And it's right. I'm sure not in every single case, but it's pretty clear from yeah. the get go. And so make sure you're talking to your kids about that trip. What happened? What was accepted? What if, you know, there, there, some some people said, you know, they went for ice cream into a movie or whatever, and some went to fraternity parties. So right. I think you can right. kind of gauge that culture a little bit. You know, I did want to say. It's unfortunate. I think so many parents, when we start to get our kids in sports, we really want to, um, and I guess not unfortunate given what we've learned today, it's, it's not completely one way or the other, but part of the reason we do want them to play sports is to protect them and keep them busy and to sort of like not have them just loose out there doing, running around, doing whatever, getting into trouble. Um, mm -hmm. But there is, and also your, your statistics, I think you mentioned in the book about, it's not even just athletes, but people interested in sports watching yeah. sports. Oh, that you was just fascinating too. I know something blue. Yeah, something blue. My book fell off. It was a postcard. It flew off my wall. The windows. Oh, okay. This is the first day. We'll see. You have to realize I live in Northern Vermont. The windows are open for the first time today. So this is like a big day for us and the wind can flow through my house all at once. I love um, it. Not, yeah. So the other thing about the college chapter that was fascinating to me when I said that, you know, even the state you go to school in makes a difference on how uh, what drinking happens in college. The other thing that was really interesting to me and I, I lay it out in the book, you know, if you're going to send your kid, especially your athlete kid to a school that has a reputation as being a big sports and big party school, it shouldn't come as any surprise to you that sports and drinking are inextricably linked and highly valued at that school. You know, when you go to and the lists are out there and, you know, it, do, it, it does 
there are a lot of things you can predict based on um, sort of what's out there about those colleges and in terms of what they prioritize and what um, you know we know about them. And you know what's really interesting to me is that in the in the college uh, chapter, the big experiment on um, on plural on pluralistic thinking ignorance sorry pluralistic ignorance was at Princeton and what was fascinating to me was to find out that at Princeton on reunion weekends the only gathering that has more drinking per capita than a Princeton reunion oh, is the Indianapolis 500. <laughs> that was crazy. <laughs> I mean, it was bananas, but it also showed that. And then, of course, Princeton Princeton took some sort of token measures to tamp down the drinking. And one of them was taking away kegs, saying kegs are no longer allowed on campus. But then they had this amazing opportunity to ask to survey students about their feelings about the keg ban. And what was so cool to read was that the students tended to say, well, I don't care personally about the keg ban, but everyone else cares a lot about the keg ban. So anyway, a friend it's, who it's, cares yeah. about it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Should we, I, I think everyone needs to get this book because it will give you help on what to do, but let's touch on those really quickly. We're almost at an hour here. But how do you inoculate or protect your your kids? And, and again, guys, get this book because it breaks it down. And there's a lot in this section. And I have notes galore, just like crazy for my own self. And I've already started doing them. But if you can just sort of highlight a few of the top ones. First, I would like to point out that one of the things we know is that no matter how bad things are for kids when they're little, no matter how many adverse childhood experiences we know the research is clear that when kids have one person who believes in them and that they can confide in and that they can trust, they are far, far, far more likely to be okay as adults in terms of their mental health and physical health. And coaches are so often that person. Coaches, in fact, I was talking about my niece with the wrestler. She has a coach from when she first started when she was in elementary school. And he is still the person she looks, he doesn't even live anywhere near her. But every time something goes well, she goes straight to him and she just trusts him. He's her person. And that's actually, my sister refers to him as her person. Um, and as teachers, we're they're often a person, um, but you could be a pastor, you could be a mentor, you could be, and often we don't find out we were the kid's person until they're grown up and they tell us that we were their person. Oh, that's and that's why for me, getting this book into the hands of people who are that person is so important because if we're giving kids good information about the data, about how they're overestimating the rest, the use that, uh, you know, use among other adolescents, how um, this stuff affects the brain, then we were, we're doing really well. So that's why I think it's so important for coaches to remember just how important they are as that kid's person often. So really, really clearly. Wait, Jess, before you move on from yeah. that, because I have a really yeah. pointed question about that, yeah. that I was curious. So if you're a coach and you do have a lot of access with these kids, sometimes more than their parents even see them. Mm -hmm. And if you're concerned a little bit, I think a lot of us get caught in this, well, it's not really my place, my, or the parents are going to be upset. What do you do? I know that could take you know, us somewhere else, but if you can answer that just a little bit would be great. 
I mean, in my mind, so as a teacher, I was a mandated reporter. So like if, for, of abuse and of various other things. And I, I sort of like to expand that bubble out of, I know not legally you're a mandated reporter, but when you are worried about a kid, even if it's because you've heard from other kids, right. I'm always going to err on the side of um, checking in with the parents, um, checking in with um, their uh, a school counselor or something like that. And you know, from my, and then there's always that line between, I don't want to violate the kid's confidence, but at the mm -hmm. same time, we're worried yeah. about their safety. And for me, I always err on the side of safety rather than confidence because over and over again, students have come back to me, including Georgia in the book is a perfect example. Georgia started drinking in middle school. And by the time she was in high school, she was a daily drinker. She was also cutting herself. I suspected she was cutting herself because she would hold her sleeves down like this. And, you know, I said some things, other people said some things, if we needed to push much, much harder than we did. And I have so many regrets about not pushing harder than we did, not holding her to consequences. Because kids who we, I have held to consequences in the past. In fact, there was one student in particular, I was positive, she just loathed me. For the entire time I was her teacher, and she came back to me and told me I was one of her people and I was one of her people because I held her to her feet to the fire and expected more from her when other people were letting her get away with all kinds of crap she shouldn't have been getting away with. And at the time, that was uncomfortable for both of us. Having those conferences with the parent was uncomfortable, especially when the mother was so angry at me and really yelled at me for taking her daughter to task. I'm so glad I did it. I'm so glad I put myself through that discomfort because now her daughter is a healthy person who expects more from herself now in adulthood. And I got to be a part of that. So I am, I'll take the yelling from the parents. I'll take the, you're overstepping your bounds. Because if you come back to the parent or the teacher or the principal or whoever, and I say, look, I know this is uncomfortable, but I am on the side of this kid and this kid's well-being and health. And who on earth, well, some people, as in my experience I have found, have said, yeah, that's not what I'm most important worried right, about right, right now. I'm more I'm worried about her grades or her getting into that tournament next weekend. But I'm sorry, I am gonna be on the side of the kids' health, well-being, mental health, and their ability to, you know, to to be well out there in the world. So if that ruffles some feathers, I'm sorry, but that's my job. That's yeah. my job as a teacher. So, um, okay, back to protective factors. Yeah. Thank okay, you. Okay, cool. Yeah, no worries. So protective factors, what we know is, as I mentioned before, only 57% of schools use any substance abuse prevention program and only 10% of those are evidence-based. The ones that are proven have gone through, there's an organization um, called Blueprints out of the University of Colorado at Boulder that independently evaluates um, all kinds of intervention programs, all kinds of programs like um, counseling kids through uh, separation and divorce, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. And, and some of them are social emotional learning programs. Social emotional learning programs are incredibly protective against all kinds of risky behaviors, especially the ones that have substance abuse prevention components to them. And all of those programs start in preschool and all of the communication needs to start in preschool. And I am not talking about talking to kids about crack use in preschool. I'm talking about <laughs> I'm talking about things like when your child is very young, having conversations about why we don't swallow the tooth. And believe me, the everything I'm saying is a script in this book. Like 
the more I was out there in the world talking about gift of failure, the more parents would say to me, yes, yes, but tell me exactly what to say. So that's what we did with this book, right. Scripts Galore, especially when the this, this subject can be hard. So with a really little kid, you're talking about why you don't swallow the toothpaste, why you spit it out, why we wash our hands, why we, um, oh, look, there's this prescription bottle on the counter. Can you find the letters of mommy's name in on this prescription bottle? why do you think it has mommy's name on it and not your name? What if you needed the same, this is an antibiotic. What if you needed the same antibiotic? Could you just take mommy's medicine? And that conversation about why we only take medicines that are prescribed to us and have their name, our name on them goes, you know, will segue beautifully into conversations later on about opiates and, and taking opiates out of people's medicine cabinets and just how dangerous that is. And conversations around why your uncle is standing out on the front porch smoking a cigarette because grandma won't let him in the house and smoke. And why is that? Oh, interesting. If secondhand smoke is so dangerous for us, what is it doing to Uncle Ted's, you know, blah, blah, blah. And why does Ted make the decision to smoke? And telling them that just smoking is bad, again, isn't going to do the trick because Ted's smoking because he's getting something out of it, not just it, it, telling kids that just all drugs and alcohol are bad makes no sense whatsoever. So all of those conversations, and I, I lay out in the book, starting a preschool, what to say, starting an elementary school, what to say, and here's what the best social emotional learning and substance abuse programs do at each phase along the way mm -hmm. um, in order to best pr uh, protect kids. And some of those later on have to do with refusal skills helping kids know what to say back to someone when they say, you know, oh, everyone does it or it's no big deal. Giving kids exit strategies. I mean, as a woman in recovery, um, one of the most important things I do for myself is always give myself a an exit strategy whenever I go to any outing, whether it's to, you know, a party or whatever, a restaurant where there's a bar um, or and the other thing I do for myself is give myself permission to offend someone if I feel like I need to leave, if I feel like I'm just my defenses are getting low and having a beer sounds like a really good idea. I have to give myself permission to walk away from that and having conversations around and doing that with kids, having conversations, giving them exit strategies and giving them permission to get their friend pissed off at them leads to a beautiful conversation about what real friendship is and why friends why we have the friends we do and what it is what it is we look for in relationships. I have a friend that now that I'm in recovery has called ahead to functions that we're both going to to make sure there are going to be non-alcoholic beverages available for cool. me. And she yeah. does that because she loves me. And that's very much a part of the conversation about helping kids have healthy peer relationships as well. You know, our friends look out for us. They don't do things that are going to be, um, that are gonna torpedo us and, uh, you know, and, and work against our best interests. So having a lot of clear communication in the book, I also, and it actually in this, in the excerpt that's at the Washington Post right now, my kids, if they had their, their, uh, their, way about it would tell me nothing, right? Because I have 22 and a 17 year old, they don't want to tell me anything. Yeah. So in the Washington Post excerpt that's up right now, I talk about how I replicated a game of, um, there's a show called Hot Ones that's hosted by Sean Evans okay. on the First We Feast Network. And he knocks celebrities off their defensive game, their interview game, their well-practiced interview game by giving them increasingly spicy hot wings to eat that he eats along with them. And with each wing, there is a question. And so my husband and I devised 10 questions for our kids, not meant to embarrass them, but meant to get to know them better and understand how they, what makes them tick. And I set up a game 
game of hot ones um, with <laughs> vegan and regular wings because we have vegan in the <laughs> and um, set them up, it was a big secret. And when they came downstairs, and there's pictures at the Washington Post too of what it looked like. And when they came down and saw all those wings laid out with sheafs of paper in front of both of us, they totally knew what was coming and they were all in, they loved it. We learned it. so much about our kids. We laughed, like by the end we were drinking um, liquefied vanilla ice cream because it was so painful towards <laughs> the end. But we were laughing so hard. and. Creating those moments, you know, and, and New Year's Eve, I don't drink. So uh, New Year's Eve this year, we I bought all sorts of painting supplies and we sat down, all of us at our dinner table and we had canvases and painting supplies and we painted and sat around for like four hours and just talked to each other about stuff while we painted. Um, you know, sometimes we have to get a little creative, but creating a situation in which we have a place to talk to each other. And that's why one of the most power, this is oft cited, um, one of the most powerful protective factors for kids is uh, family dinner. Right. And I don't want parents to feel obligated, guilty, shamed by the fact that they don't have a daily dinner, especially for parents of athletes. Often, you know, practices yeah. get in the way yeah. of family dinner. Right. But I see family dinner as emblematic of something, of something bigger, of that time when you have to sort of look each other in the face, right. when you check in with each other, it's really hard to sit down to dinner when you're drunk or stoned and not have that be apparent. So that's what we're really talking about when we talk about yeah, family dinner, just yeah. regular, regular check-ins that are long enough that you can get past that, how did it go at school today? Fine. Those conversations right. are easy, they're mindless, you need to get past that. Sure. And then on top of that, um, uh, especially for athletes, this is going to come in really, really handy because in order to play sports, you have to have an annual physical and physicians, um, whether that's a family practice doc, a nurse practitioner, a pediatrician, are using increasingly these uh, screening tools. Uh, you may have noticed that your kid has to tap out some answers on a tablet when they first when they're in the waiting room. Um, you need to give your kids space when they tap out those answers sure. because those answers are about kids exposure to high risk things like riding in a car with someone who's been drinking. If you're so worried about you looking good as a parent that you're pressuring your kids to answer differently than they're answering, then you need to There's really look at your motive. Sure, yeah. Because your what your physician, what your kid's physician does is keep an eye on those answers and they can do and a, a popular screening tool is called Espert. Screening, brief intervention, and referral to treatment if necessary. Yep. So brief interventions can be as simple as having a conversation about, I noticed you answered that you were in a car with someone who was drinking once. How did you handle that? What do you plan to do in the future about that? And those sorts of questions are really, really important. I also sure. want to point to school nurses and school counselors. School nurses are um, undervalued in our society and underutilized in our society and unfortunately underemployed in our society. We And I don't mean underemployed, I mean we need more of them. Um, sure. We need school districts to take school nurses seriously. School nurses are um, incredibly qualified, wonderful resources for kids and, and for families when they're looking for to be referred out into community resources. They are often very good as our school counselors to knowing what's out there in the community and available at low or no cost. And school counselors, same thing. We're used to school counselors being like 
the guy who sits there in detention and makes sure everyone does what they're right. supposed to do. But school counselors are required now to have master's degrees. So these are professionals, mental health professionals who are right. extraordinarily good at counseling kids around all kinds of things. And please don't just think of them as college counselors. That's not what they are. They are a separate, very qualified um, professional having to do with mental health issues and referring kids uh, for treatment. So very, communication, very pediatricians, school nurses, school counselors, all very, get allies. These are all fantastic allies. Excellent. So I know we're out of time. Um, so again, <laughs> if you're listening, uh, The Addiction Inoculation is Jessica Leahy's book. And there's tons and tons. We only touched the surface on, on some of the protective factors. And if there's one thing we do know, it's that prevention works. Um, if you're listening, go. if you're listening <laughs> and you need professional help, I, I feel like I have to state yes. this. After, if you've yeah. tried the protective factors, and and this is beyond this now, uh, right. you know there there are the crisis text line. Please, you can text the word home to seven four one seven four one. You can. I love the SAMHSA website. That's S A M H S A. That's S A M H S A dot gov, or you can call one eight hundred six six two help. Uh, find a therapist, find a treatment center, but SAMHSA really can can link you up to professional help. And then if you're trying to track your use, there's a great free app called Quit That that can keep track of how long it's been since you've you've uh, used something or, or bought something and so, so forth. So And Sam, you'll put those in the comments at the end. Sure, I'm happy and, to do that. And you know, I was, I was going to do that at the end. I'm so grateful oh, to you. You're the first person who's taken the initiative to do that at the end. If you're, you know, that little if you think someone you love may have a problem. Right. Thank you for doing. I, that. I should have done it in a more rapid speech, just like the commercials. But um. and and parents, just a little bit. I'm going to run down a few things that are in this book that you need to read about. Uh, self-efficacy over confidence, huge one that she goes into deeply in this book and it, it really resonated. Authoritative parenting style is another one. And so parents, you can read, she has, Jess has it all laid out there. It's it's really helpful scripts as she, as she, she explained. Also, you know, the, a huge overriding one that you started with having that communication with your child where you're not checking their stuff and, and that's a tricky one for me. I started out very like, what are you doing? What, where, yeah. where would it? And that it's got, you know what it's gotten me? Zip lips on everything. Actually, and here's what it'll also get you. We know that kids who are controlled more tightly by their parents lie to their parents a lot more. And I have to just give a quick shout out to my first book, Gift of Failure, because there's an entire sports chapter in that book that okay. talks a lot about the fact that when um, when surveyed uh, serious athletes, uh, when serious athletes were surveyed about their favorite and least favorite part of youth sports, um, they listed <laughs> their least favorite part of youth sports as the um, the ride home with their parents after the games. Yeah. And, and then and then uh, they listed their very favorite thing about youth sports is when their grandparents came to watch them play. So let's think about a little bit about the what what the motivation is of grandparents when they come to watch their their kids play and to try to be a little bit more like grandparents and a little bit less like those parents who uh, critique every aspect of play on the way home in the car. Because I have to say, the way home in the car, the car is a miraculous place to have long conversations, Good especially yeah. if you're on a traveling team and you have to travel long distance. Yeah, you got it. Uh, 
Last point I was wanted to make just because I did reach out to a lot of my friends with athletes. I'm in a lot of different circles and different sports and just asked them. I wanted to know like firsthand and they shared a little some questions I did. And the the, the interesting things that came up and I just want to point them out was that, um, you know, stress. They said why athletes would use stress, yeah. super high motivator. So parents, we know for a fact that them. girls. Yeah, girls tend to use uh, alcohol more often in order to uh, deal with anxiety. And we also know that women with anxiety are more likely to drink abnormally than to drink normally. And and athletes in particular, a lot going yeah. on, a lot of time management, a lot of stress for performance. Um, they they all, all, and look, this was a small group of my kids' friends. This was not a, a big study. Different sports, different genders, but COVID, they said they've seen a rise in their teammates' um, use. Um, and the last one, you know, that, that I thought was kind of encouraging, and I wanted to end on a positive note, almost all of them said that within their teams, they do try to self-correct um, their friends. So again, a small yeah. sampling of my friends, but I found that sort of encouraging. And yeah. again, the addiction inoculation, Jess Leahy, we so appreciate you coming on. You're, you're amazing. And we could have you on for a, a number Thank of different you. topics down the line, but we really, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. And thank you for getting the word out, especially to coaches and athletes, parents, because I think that we do have a lot of power to control the decisions our kids make about their health and safety. And no matter how much we tend to think that they they aren't listening to us, they actually do. They do cite their parents as, as a reliable source of good information well into college. So keep that in mind and keep the faith that um, there are lots of things we can do to improve the situation. And I, for one, am optimistic that we're going to keep this thing, keep this trend moving in the right direction. Perfect. On that note, all right, guys, have a great day and uh, till next time. Thank you so much. Bye. <laughs>